Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. This is going to be a fairly short one because yeah. for the first time in a while, we're actually doing uh, a weekly yeah, we're on track. <laughs> journal. Um, and I had a, a big, uh, busy weekend, so I've only seen four movies over the past week. I don't have that much to talk about. You have also only seen four movies because you're incredibly busy. Yes. Um, so why don't you uh, kick things off? All right. So I finished um oj made in america and i think i was about five hours into it when we last uh when we last joined our heroes yeah um but i've talked i'm getting confused because i've talked to you since you finished it yes so Um, i'm gonna sit back and not comment it's remarkably powerful obviously um it spends a lot of time on the trial as it should because uh that is it is the as I said last week. It's the collision of these two things that they've spent hours setting mm-hmm. up: the LAPD and O.J. Simpson. Um, and what I think is actually fascinating, and the film ultimately winds up being a little bit frustrating for me in the last, I guess you could say, the last act, or maybe it's maybe it's not the last act. I think I think people, I, I think the director treated the last like hour and a half as sort of a denouement. And I think that's my problem. Mm. I think it treats the verdict as the climax, which is understandable. And then everything after that is falling action. But to me, that is so much more interesting. Uh, Not more interesting, but it's just as interesting because OJ thought he could go back to being OJ. Mm -hmm. He could not. (laughs) Yeah. And so you actually see him for the first time in his life, sort of being forced to identify as a black man because that is what kind of got him off uh, the support of the black community. And so you see him now engaging with that community more. uh, And then you see him kind of fall into a a very specific type of fame, Uh, the type of fame that we would see now. We feel, I feel like is more common now, which is sort of this bad boy image and just kind of sort of a a hedonistic life. Uh, I think he, when he realized he wasn't going to be accepted by the, the masses really anymore, including certain, uh, sections of the black uh, community. Um, I think he just realized like, I'm just going to do what I want to do. And he has like this entourage and it just, it seems really sleazy and, mm-hmm. and all that. And I would have liked to spend more time delving into how he arrived at this as an okay way to live. Uh, and I don't mean to judge him, but like, it's so night and day between, you know, uh, from where we saw him to where he is now. And then we do, uh, you know, we are given a little bit of background on the robbery that eventually lands him in jail for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. And I would have liked more time spent on that because people do, I think they, they connect the dots and they show that. Yeah. Uh, I, there, one of his, uh, I think you mentioned this, one of his, uh, one of his, uh, old lawyers, um, said that you know that's a two-year crime soaking wet yeah and which is a wonderful way of saying it yeah but he Uh, got 33 years yeah yeah which is which is admittedly crazy but nobody has a problem with it yeah and socially because we all know what it's actually for and Um, he was um there's also a little detail that the judge essentially kept everyone late into the night in order to have the sentencing on the anniversary of his not guilty verdict. Yeah. Is, is, is that right? There's the anniversary or something. It's not, that's, I think that's correct. Yeah. Yes. Uh, which is, which is kind of crazy. And I think, uh, it's 33 years because he was ordered to, I think pay the Goldman's $33 million, oh, right. which he avoided doing somehow. And so like everything was so obviously symbolic, yeah. um, in a way that I'm not thrilled with. Yeah, that doesn't seem like uh, the blind justice we learned about. <laughs> right. It's Oh, yeah. The, uh, that was an extra textual verdict <laughs> um, or, or sentence. Pardon me. Uh, and so that's the thing is I would have liked to spend more time on this, uh, on that aspect. And yes, I recognize that by that time, it's already seven and a half hours. But honestly, I feel like let's round up. Let's go to eight hours. We've got 30 more minutes of... OJ's fame post trial and 
digging more into his mentality, into the mentality that I'd say the desperate mentality that brought him into uh, making a very, this very bad illegal decision. Uh, and I would have liked to get to know some of the other players, you know, when you see you, it, it's so interesting to me. Um, uh, Jen and I have this, um, this uh, box set of this history channel miniseries about all the presidents. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is you'll see various experts. They'll be there for like three presidents because clearly they are experts on this section of time. And then there'll be like overlap and oh, then right. one, one expert will go away. And, and I feel like you see this in the people that are being interviewed for uh, OJ made in America, like people that were there for certain times of his life. And that's why they're being interviewed for this. Uh, and then, and I get a really good sense of who everybody is in the first six hours. Then people start showing up and I don't totally know what their relationship is to OJ. And I feel like that's a problem. Hmm. So I don't mean to say that I, I, I love this. Th- I love this film. Uh, and I think it might be a little bit nitpicky of me to talk about the last 90 minutes. Um, but I wish that it had just, I wish that it had been fully committed, uh, to showing it being as comprehensive there as it was in the previous six hours, but I still love it. Uh, all right. Um, I watched the movie I've been meaning to watch for a few years because it came out a few years ago. Um, almost five years ago at this point. Uh, and I'm glad I watched it when I did. Because there's a thing I've talked about before um, on the podcast, and maybe I should write something about it because I think it's important that sometimes when we're watching, a, 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 when we're following a director, mm-hmm. when we're watching the movies in the order they're, they're made and released, we are writing a narrative in our heads and we are um, comparing the movies to one another maybe in a way that is sometimes unfair to them. So unfair to the movies or unfair yes, to the director? Probably both. Okay. But you know, it's like the, the example I always give to give is that like, I, I think burn after reading is a much better movie than sure. Uh, it's initial response, uh, would indicate, but it's because it was the one after no country for old men. It was after, you know, one of the greatest films of the 21st century so yeah. far. And then they make this, uh, weird dark comedy. Um, and now I feel like burn after reading is getting, getting the respect that it deserves. Okay. This movie is not that good, okay. but it is better than I remember hearing. Uh, but it, because it, it came out in between Woody Allen's two best movies of the 21st century, Midnight in Paris and Blue Jasmine. Okay. In between that was To Rome with Love. Oh, okay. Have yeah. you seen it? I have not. Uh, I'm glad I watched it. It's not, it's, it's not great. It has some of that Woody Allen shabbiness um that that marks his uh work over the past 20 years or so mm-hmm. uh you, you know um you, you know it like i feel like it used to be like can you believe woody allen like only shoots like eight or nine hours a day and he's always home in time to watch the knicks <laughs> and now it's like yeah yes. i can believe that <laughs> when you watch one of his movies it's like yeah it looks like he went that was good enough it's like uh, uh na- yes i uh, it's like i actually can't believe it but going the other way <laughs> feels like he shot for about five hours yeah um uh, and so it, it's, it's not, it's definitely not perfect. And it is, I didn't realize it was like, it was, a um, I guess uh, not an anthology cause they're not standalone, but it's a bunch of short stories that overlap. Oh, okay. Uh, or they don't even actually, they don't even overlap. They just, they're just edited. You know, what's the word I'm looking for? It's parallel editing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but even then it doesn't necessarily make sense because there's one story that takes place all in one day and there's another, and then like the other two stories take place over the course of a week or whatever, but there, it, it hmm. goes back and forth with them just, uh, giving them, uh, the same amount of time. There is a name um, for that. What is that? Uh, yeah, I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm sure someone can, yeah. uh, speaking of which I learned, uh, I can't remember if this is on the movie journal or the regular episode, but I asked what the roulette ball was called ah. and it seems like 90, 95% of the time it's just called a ball, but it is technically referred to as a pill and oh, if you okay. want like i uh, look if you want to like order roulette balls online they're like listed as pills hmm, roulette okay. pills or whatever anyway um but back to the movie um so yeah it's 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 hit or miss um but it, it has a lot of fun it's very uh uh pretty warm to look at darius kanji shot it um and uh the um it, it feels like i, I guess um, it feels like a throwback to me to 
some earlier Woody Allen or especially like the short story collections or like collections of like short stories and essays and like weird little bits that he would write because, um, like some of the stories are, uh, more or less straightforward and some of them have kind of high concept or, or in the Roberto Benigni one, incredibly high concept where Roberto Benigni plays a regular middle-class man who one day for no reason that anyone can understand becomes incredibly famous. Hmm. He doesn't do anything differently, but uh, he's very famous. All of a sudden he goes out to his car to go to work and there's paparazzi out there. He's just suddenly very famous. That's a very Woody Allen type of idea. That's kind of neat. Um, and then it has the, um, um, the Alec Baldwin, Jesse Eisenberg, Greta Gerwig, uh, Ellen Page story, which is my favorite, because mm-hmm. Alec Baldwin plays a guy who is on vacation with a he's a he's a successful archaeologist, not archaeologist. Uh, what's the what's the thing that everyone is in movies? Architect. Um, uh, and he's on vacation with a like a few other rich people, and they're in Rome, and he used to live in Rome. 30 years ago when he was uh, studying architecture uh, and they want to go to the ruins and he's like, I, I, you know, I've lived here. I've seen all that. Never liked the touristy stuff. I'm just going to walk through my old neighborhoods for the day. You guys go through the, the, the ruins. And he, when he's walking, he meets Jesse Eisenberg's character and starts hanging out with him and then meets his girlfriend, Greta Gerwig. And then their friend who's staying with them, Ellen page. But then you pretty two or three scenes in, you realize, Oh, that's not really what's happening. Jesse Eisenberg is young Alec Baldwin and he's oh, okay. reliving a, uh, a particularly painful uh, moment from hmm. his time in Rome. It's, it's very cool. And then it suddenly seems more complex than I thought it was going uh, to. Yeah. And then there's a silly one with uh, Penelope Cruz. Like there's a, a young couple just married comes to Rome for their honeymoon. The wife goes out and gets lost uh, trying to find a salon. And then Penelope Cruz as a prostitute comes into the husband's room mistakenly mistaken for the wrong room just as his family from Rome is getting there um, because they were going to take him and his wife out to lunch. So then Penelope Cruz has to pretend to be his wife. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it's it's very sort of uh, hammy. Um, It's it's not great. Uh, Anyway, but overall, it's excuse me. You're in the wrong room. But why, why is it imperative? That, uh... <laughs> yeah. It, okay. It, it, I mean, it makes slightly more sense than that in the, within the thing, but, um, yeah, I, I was, I was pleasantly surprised it, even though it is, it's shabby, it's hit or miss. It's overlong. It's almost two full hours, yes. um, which is more than, uh, Woody Allen movies generally should be. Yeah. Uh, I feel like but, 89 minutes <laughs> is about right. Uh, yeah. Um, but, uh, I'm, I'm glad I watched it and I'm glad I watched it without, the context of midnight in Paris being the last one, um, or, you know, or having seen blue, you know, it's, I've seen blue Jasmine since I saw it in the theater, uh, same as midnight in Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, cause it doesn't really stand up to either of those two movies. Um, and yes, when I say those are the, his best movies of the 21st century, I'm including match point, which I think is, uh, drastically overrated. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I've always said, I, I'm sure I've said this on the podcast before. We've been doing this almost, almost 10 years, but match point is crime, crimes and misdemeanors without all the fun parts. Yeah. Uh, and that's a, it's a bummer. Well, and it's, I like it in that that story can make for a, a really good thriller and that has, and it's, there's an, a slickness to it that I like. Uh, but yes, I much prefer the story. You know, Martin Landau is more interesting than Jonathan Reese Myers. Yeah. And then you know which one I actually speaking of Penelope Cruz I never saw Vicky Cristina Barcelona I know a lot of people like Nor that have I, one. yeah it's supposed to be good all right what's next for you next for me is Barry Jenkins Moonlight okay so uh, what do you think <laughs> <laughs> pretending I don't know indeed uh, yeah I will say that um, now I was gonna I was gonna see it anyway just because the you know the Oscars and all that sort of thing but uh, uh, so I'm part of um, this thing called a colloquium uh, at school. And it meets five times in a quarter. And usually uh, you just sit and listen to somebody talk about this this thing they're working on. You ask them questions and that sort of thing. So, uh, But this time uh, they said, okay, we're going to actually, this is going to be discussion-based. We're not going to have any, present, uh, any presenter or anything like that. Um, so, you know, what, what ideas do you have as far as things we can discuss? And so a few ideas were thrown out there. And then I thought, uh, I thought, 
honestly of a good podcast topic. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I thought, well, given last year's Oscars So White campaign, perhaps we could talk about Fences, Moonlight, and Hidden Figures in relation to each other, uh, in relation to the nominations they received, and then uh, in relation to the, the attitudes last year. And so everybody went with that. So when I saw Moonlight, and the next one, by the way, is Hidden Figures uh, that I saw. Um, I was definitely thinking about it in relation to Fences, which I, I had already seen, and anticipating what Hidden Figures was going to be. So I watched it in a very specific context. Of course, I was going to see it anyway, but the urgency, I, I could have seen it any time before the Oscars, but the urgency uh, kind of forced me to think about it in terms of, of Oscars So White and that sort of thing. So... Um, so I, I guess I'll talk about that here, which is, it is, I feel like some people would be inclined, and I, and I can understand it, I feel like I would be inclined to look at uh, the, the support for Moonlight and Fences and Hidden Figures as sort of uh, obligatory after last year. Um, and well, no, we all got that out of our system with Birth of a Nation, uh, and it well, blew up in everyone's face, <laughs> yes. and then people were actually able to focus on movies that, for being good. I do think that there an argument could be made that Moonlight is so authentic and it it doesn't necessarily welcome you in. It doesn't push you away, but these are characters that are just going to live on their own terms as opposed to okay, we need to make this accessible or anything like that. It is um as opposed to something like hidden figures, which I'll talk more in depth about that is for a mass audience. And thus you will have people explaining things, uh, in ways that are sometimes a little bit too expository and in other ways seem genuine. Whereas moonlight, it is its own film. It is telling its own story. You want to nominate it for something? Hey, neat. That's not why I, I do not get the vibe that that's why it is doing any of this. I don't think Barry Jenkins made this film with any expectation that, no. it, that it would get uh, I, any kind of award support. I can't support. imagine that he did. Um, Especially, I mean, he hadn't made a film since Medicine for Melancholy, starring right. our friend Wyatt Snack, uh, which is a great movie. Um, I still haven't seen it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you can, if you watch Medicine, Medicine for Melancholy, you'll see like, yeah, I think maybe he had this in him, but then you also see stuff um, that you, the, in Moonlight that you couldn't have imagined. Uh, it, it's, but yeah, to, to, I think to talk about these movies in reaction to that, um, reaction, uh, Moonlight does seem like an outlier from the other two. Yes. Even though both, I, to the best of my memory, it's been uh, a little bit, uh, been a couple months since I've seen either one of them, but neither fences nor Moonlight has any white characters that speak. Right, there are no speaking roles that are white in either movie. Uh, that's correct. Uh, but the difference is in Fences, white America is ever present. Yes. In Moonlight, this is a uh, a cloistered hermetic environment. This is yeah. this is just yeah. this. It's not even just Miami. It's this neighborhood. The kids who go to this school. You know, the kids who lay the people who this is their local drug dealer. You know, yeah. like everything takes place in. Uh, in in a, a very small uh, community, um, and and it's not even really about community. Although I think that's absolutely it, it absolutely is there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The, yeah, the, yeah. Because it, it's both um, community is, but again, it's not the community in relation to white Miami or white mm-hmm. uh, or Cuban Miami. Or I guess there are Cubans in the, in the movie, but uh, it, it's just about this one community, and you see how from that community, uh, little slash black slash Chiron gets support. And you also see how, um, it's a prison for him uh, as well, yeah. you know, in, in the same way, you know, even after, you know, in the second, um, uh, section, he's still being taken care of by general Monet's character. Um, Teresa, is that her name? Yeah. Um, uh, but then he also goes to school the next day and gets sort of made fun of for the fact that, uh, Teresa takes care of him. His mom's a crackhead or whatever, because everyone knows uh, everyone's business. Yeah, it really, uh, I'll say this, that in in the, uh, the colloquium, um, there's a fellow classmate that I've been in classes before named, uh, Kwanda and she is, uh, African American and she's older than most of my fellow students. So she and I actually bonded over, as we say, being adults. Um, (laughs) and so, uh, 
so we would often, uh, you know, like adults do, we would whisper to each other about all these young people, um, <laughs> and then giggle. So, uh, but she's, and, and yeah, Quanda and I get along, uh, splendidly you guys, as you can see. Yeah. You guys are chatting back and forth on your LinkedIn pages. <laughs> Um, Where you know no one one else in the class. Yeah, we speak very openly. Uh, (laughs) But um, anyway, and so she, uh, you know, and so as I said, she's she's African American, and she uh, has had some very interesting things to say about the communal element of both fences, and especially moonlight, Hmm. and said that you know, and this is something that I I didn't know um, that. The idea of, you know, it takes a village is something that in certain communities, uh, I guess you could say in certain neighborhoods, often urban neighborhoods, uh, that is predominantly African American, you know, and I feel like you maybe see some of this and like do the right thing. Everybody knows everybody else. Mm -hmm. And you actually get sort of this idea of like, oh, so-and-so has a bad family uh, situation, uh, we'll sort of take him or her under our wing. Like, it's actually a surprisingly common occurrence. Hmm. Um, and so so the idea that, um, that these other kids would absolutely know, not merely that he has, that Chiron has a, a crackhead mother, but that, uh, that he is taken under the wing of this, of this, uh, very nice woman whose boyfriend or husband, I don't remember exactly, uh, Marshall Ali's character. I don't remember what his relation to her is, but, yeah. um, after he has died and that sort of thing. And so, um, oh, sorry. It's, <laughs> I don't feel like it's much of a spoiler. Yeah, I he's guess not the main character. <laughs> I guess you know what. From an advertising standpoint, he is very prominent in the advertising, but he's not in the film that long. Really, right. he's definitely a supporting character. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just such a. It feels like a like a like we're being given a glimpse of of a of a world that I am not a part of at all, and and I feel like we don't see in movies that much. Like you said, with fences. And I don't think this is a drawback to fences, but no. but white America is ever present in the same way that it's odd. I, I recently read uh, the memoir of Andrew Claven, who some people know as a conservative commentator, but is also a novelist and a screenwriter. And his father was um, uh, like a, a radio per, like a radio comedian in the nineteen fifties and sixties. And so. Uh, but he grew up, but Andrew Clavin grew up in a, in a Jewish family and his father had a tendency to sabotage his kids sort of in the way of where it says, it's a, it says like, Oh, you're not, you're no, nothing's ever going to happen for you anyway. You know, not in this country, you know, with, mm-hmm. with all the anti-Semitism around and boy, that feels a lot like, uh, like Troy. Denzel Washington's yeah. character with his son talking about like, Oh, the white man's not going to let anything happen for us. And so in the same way that the idea of anti-Semitism in this, in the memoir of this guy, uh, Andrew Clavin is ever present. Um, yeah. Like the idea of rate of like white racism, even though these guys don't interact with white characters. Um, yeah. Uh, well they do. We just don't see it. Right. Yes, they that's do, true. They do at work. That's, yes, yeah. they are the bosses. And so, yeah. um, and even if the bosses are benevolent, they are still over right. Denzel Washington's character. And so, yeah. Uh, and so one thing that I said last year, because I had uh, a number of issues with the Oscars So White campaign, um, but what, but my conclusion was that even though I might have a philosophical problem with some of the conclusions that were, uh, that were come to, I'm okay with it. If practically it allows certain films to be championed and certain films to be seen. And I feel like moonlight there, there's the possibility that even without the, the campaign last year, um, that it still would have been picked up on by various critics and various industry awards, but maybe not. And so if the Oscars, so white campaign kind of allowed people to be, you know, looking for movies that, that deal with, you know, African-American issues. Um, if this, if, if, if people's knowledge of moonlight came about as a result of that, then you know what? I'm happy with it. 
Uh, Marvelous film. And I'll, uh, I'll, I'll repeat a point that I made on the podcast before. The main reason people argue for greater representation in the culture, mm. uh, and this is the main important reason, is for uh, young people who don't normally see people like them, be sure. it in terms of you know gender or race or, or sexuality or, or whatever, um, doing certain things on screen to see that and to make that seem normal and to uh, mm. that that is the main thing the the second benefit the the fringe benefit that that we as the status quo get yeah right is that we get to see more varied stories yeah that's uh, true and we get to see representations of of communities and people and lives that we don't normally see and that should be exciting for us and, and, what's, and what's interesting is that uh, i did have the thought and i'm sorry to you know uh, to have this thought but you know, the way that this, that the community in Moonlight operates, it felt like you could, and, and, and the fact that this character is, is gay and he's trying to figure out how that fits into his identity. Uh, I feel like you could take this to a small Southern white town and it could fit pretty well. Mm. Um, oh, I see. Yeah. And so I feel like it's a, so in saying that, I feel like, it, yes, it's about sexuality. It's about race. I think it's also about class. Yeah. Um, in that regard. And that's something that I find fascinating. And, yeah. and it's not something that I hear people talking about very much in regards to the, to the film. All right. Listeners see it. If you, if you haven't yet, moving on to the next thing I saw, this comes out next month, um, or it comes out here in America next month. It came out in Germany. It premiered at the Berlin film festival two years ago. That's important. Uh, it's, it's, it's a new film from the director, Oliver Hirschbiegel, who's best known for downfall. Hmm. Um, in the U S he's, uh, known for sort of known for the invasion, which was taken away from him and extensively reshot yes. with, uh, I believe James McTeague as the director anyway. Um, but here he is, you know, more than 10 years after downfall returning to similar story, uh, with a movie called 13 minutes, or at least that's the American, um, release title. Um, in Germany, it's called Elser because people know who that is. I didn't know who that is, but no. it's about Georg, Johann Georg Elser, who um, is someone who, but well before the Valkyrie plot that we've that we're aware of, um, in in November of 1939, tried to kill Hitler hmm. um, with a with a bomb uh, at a, uh, a hall in Munich. He didn't kill kill Hitler because Hitler left 13 minutes before the bomb went off. That's what the no. movie's called. That. Um, uh, and so this is a, uh, 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 this is a, a true story. It sort of starts with the, with him planting the bomb and then the explosion. And like the, I guess the a plot is his capture and his, uh, interrogation by the SS. But, um, in some ways that's less the main plot than it is the framing device for the flashbacks. Cause mm-hmm. the, the entire seven years leading up to that bombing are told in, in flashback. And I think if I had seen this movie two years ago, I would say, well acted, handsomely shot, um, not particularly deep. Mm-hmm. But now I'm watching a movie about the early years of an authoritarian fascist taking over a country, yeah. um, and uh, I found it just riveting and, in some ways, stomach churning, um, but in a, in a good way because it has this message that I don't even know that probably we don't live with this president. We don't live in a time where we uh, necessarily need a lot of nuance to understand him because he doesn't talk in in, or or think or act in nuance. And so the, the points that Oliver Hirschbiegel is making about how the reason things seven years later got to the point where this, this, uh, Johann Georg Elser, who was a pacifist, who was not a member of any political party yeah. is becomes an assassin is because it was, it wasn't a, a flip of the switch. It was seven years of people letting awful things happen to their country and letting their country be taken over by, by thugs, um, and standing by while, um, uh, Jews and communists, uh, were being, um, you know, herded off into, into camps. And, uh, while, um, the, you know, one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the movie is when, uh, a, a woman in the town is found that she had a Jewish boyfriend and she's, uh, made to stand in the town or sit in the town square with a sign on her while people will laugh at her. Oh. Uh, yeah. Um, um, uh, and, um, 
no one does anything. Uh, you know, no. people, people say, you know, the Elster's girlfriend's character says when she hears about this, she says, poor thing, but there's nothing we can do. Right. That's literally the line. Um, and it just, I feel like, uh, <laughs> it's weird. Two years ago, I would have said, this is a skippable movie. Now I say Americans, please see this movie, uh, yeah. be, because we need to not stand idly by, um, while our freedoms are taken away and while our country becomes something unrecognizable to us. All right. And while the freedoms of people that we could speak up for are being taken away. Sure. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it was, it, it was Jews then it's Muslims now, but, um, things are happening that, uh, I don't want happening in my name and I don't want it on my conscience. Yeah. I, uh, I saw that in the last couple of days, um, cause you know, uh, Trump spoke out against like this judge and called him a so-called judge. And then Gorsuch, his nominee said, yeah, yeah that's not right. You shouldn't <laughs> be doing that. And now some people, there are some conservatives that said like, Hey, this, this guy was a good choice. He's actually going to speak truth to the guy who nominated him. Yeah. Um, but what but is, at the what, same time, this is, this is a, a recurring segment, mm-hmm. um, on the show, uh, called David unfairly calls Tyler on the carpet to speak for all Republicans. All right. But, um, why you know, there were a lot of establishment Republicans who were speaking out against Donald Trump when he was a nominee. What is with this hard line partisanship in the, in, in the voting? What I guess what I'm saying is I, I actually said this to you off mic uh, last week, I yes. think, but if Congress impeaches and removes Donald Trump, which they have, <laughs> they have cause to do. He's breaking the law every single day. Right. Um, then, they're still left with a Republican president. In fact, one they can probably work with better and oh, get more done. Yes. What is with this falling in line? Because he, because he is with certain members of the base, very popular. And so if they impeach him without public support, and I know it's weird for you and me to think like, where's uh, uh, there's tons of public support. The conservatives I know are very different than what I guess is the base, which I think is horseshit. <laughs> but um, because I'm a, I'm a conservative, damn it! I'm an actual conservative. Yeah, he's You're doing a compassionate uh, conservative like George W. Bush. Sure, why, sure, why not? Uh, I always hated that idea. I know but anyway, <laughs> that's um, why I like to bring it up. <laughs> so compassion, I mean, I hate it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, and so, um, so that's the thing is, I think they. I think they are waiting to see if there's ever something that can happen where public opinion, specifically with the base, can turn against him. And I was actually talking with a friend the other day, sort of like like with Nixon, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had like, uh, you know, there were reports on Watergate, and you had people defending him until they literally couldn't defend him anymore, and then they turned on him. His own party turned. Uh, I say turned on him as though they were doing something wrong. They, and honestly, I did have the thought. It's like, I don't even know if that's possible anymore because now nobody would trust a Woodward, uh, Woodward and Bernstein. Um, they would just assume there's some kind of bias and all that sort of thing. And so I, I don't know if it, I don't know if it's possible for somebody to be impeached anymore. Uh, but well, by, I mean, by any members of their own party. Yeah. I was going to say not by members of their own party, uh, assuming that we still have, uh, enough voting rights left by November of 2018. Um, we almost certainly not just because Trump is, uh, particularly unpopular, but just based on tradition, the first midterm after yeah. the president's elected, the opposing party tends to take over, uh, Congress in, in recent, yeah. um, in recent history. Uh, and then yeah, there will be look, no I, hesitation. I don't think at look, that point, I, you know, it's, it's, I've spent years defending the concept of gridlock, and you know what? I feel like I'm not going to have to defend that anymore. Uh, gridlock is a thing that I like uh, oh, right. in general. Um, and if if the Democrats were to take, let's say, bo- one or both houses of Congress in uh, 2018, God bless them. Like I'm, I'm fine with it. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. It, I right. mean, don't get me wrong. Like theoretically, I'm 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 not happy with it. But if it means stopping him and maybe even holding him accountable to to the tune of uh, impeaching him. 
Let's do it. Now, what about this scenario? Okay. This, um, I'm not sure, even sure how outlandish it is. What if the, for this, these two years, the GOP continues to not, uh, turn on Trump. Right. In 2018, Democrats take over the Senate and more importantly, the house. Right. Yeah. At this point, they impeach Donald Trump. And at this point, Mike Pence has become so compromised that they have dirt on him. They impeach him too. And guess who becomes president? Nancy Pelosi. (laughs) (laughs) This is why I'm telling you, uh, I mean, you know, not that I would, uh, I wouldn't be that upset about that, but I know conservatives certainly would be upset about a Nancy Pelosi presidency. So why don't they act now? Why don't they see that down the road? Oh, (laughs) that's pretty rough. I didn't think about that. Um, yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, no, I, I'm totally on board. Like uh, to me, the moment the VP debate happened, um, I feel like, you know, and obviously, and Mike Pence had a difficult job to do because he might, he winds up acting as though Donald Trump doesn't even exist. Uh, like Tim Kaine, both of them kept going after, you know, the, the top of the ticket and both guys did not address that. They instead talk about like the, the, the platform and all that. And so, uh, but Mike Pence did such a good job in that debate um, that me and a lot of people I know is just like, boy, to me, it feels like the base has no reason now to champion uh, the top of the ticket. Like let's get, it's like, by all means, let's get them both elected and then remove one of them immediately. (laughs) And then uh, off we go. And so, uh, yeah, it was, it's exhausting. Um, I, I was talking with a friend the other day that like, I would love to check out, but I feel like it's irresponsible to check out. Like yeah, no, I, I, I have, I have things to do. Yes. But I feel like as a grown up, I feel like it's, it's, uh, not the right thing to do to just, uh, turn off. Uh, well, I mean, um, that's not even an option for someone on the left at all. Um, even if I wanted to check out, I couldn't because I'm, uh, incensed every minute of every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we're, I mean, we're seeing, I think, um, uh, a, a kind of activism on the left's part that we um, haven't really seen in in terms of organization and in terms of understanding the system and understanding what works. Mm-hmm. Because I think before this year, before very recently, the idea of calling your representatives and complaining directly yeah. to your representatives is something that I think conservatives did a lot more than, than yeah. liberals. And I think... Um, we're, we're kind of learning, um, in much the way that the tea party did. Uh, and I'm, I'm the, you know, 10 billionth person to, uh, not that there aren't that many people on the planet, but I'm uh, not the first person to point out that the, um, uh, the, the left and the, in the, in the movement that sort of centered around the, the women's March, um, has the feel and has the potential to be a left-wing tea party. I think I agree. I think it just needs to work on uh, zeroing in on like the like three or four very definitive issues that they come down and very firmly on. And that's the trouble with having Donald Trump as president is that it's it's yeah. it almost feels morally irresponsible to limit yourself to four things yeah. when everything that he does is <laughs> so upsetting. Well, and honestly, one of the, I think one of the reasons that the Tea Party did well is because they were perfectly willing to target members of their own party. Uh, like the ones that were not that that they thought were not uh, serving the conservative cause. Yeah, but I mean, as long as I mean, so far we've got all of, pretty much all of the Democrats either you know voting against the yeah. um, cabinet appointees. Um, there's no one. There's no one for us to turn on yet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, someone will show up, uh, and maybe it's be, maybe it's because the Democrats. Um, learned the lesson from seeing what happened to the GOP with the tea party. And they are listening to the, 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 the vocal further left base earlier on, you know? Perhaps. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I think you're seeing, um, just like people talked about, you know, Hillary Clinton campaigned further left than she would have if it weren't for Bernie Sanders. Um, maybe that's what's, what's happening is they're like, we don't want, let's not cling to our centrism, or or whatever, um, because that didn't work out very well for John Boehner or whoever. You know, let's uh, recognize the party that's bo- or the power that's boiling up in our party. So 
the reaction could wind up being, and I'm not saying uh, I'm not speaking ill of uh, Democrats that choose to do this. Um, it's the natural reaction to somebody like Donald Trump is to become more shrill on the other side, and then, but, yeah. and then just everything, and and then both sides will be further and further apart. And again, I'm not. I don't blame. You yeah, or anybody like that, it is Trump's fault and it is the Republicans' fault for well, I mean, choosing well, him as their standard bearer. This, I mean, the, this entrenched partisanship is not Trump's fault. It was already happening. Sure. It, you know, there's so much intransigence uh, in, mm. in Congress, in Congress than, than there continues to be. That's not, you know, these strict party line votes are not new to, to, yeah. to Trump, uh, un, unfortunately. It, you know, it used to be. It used to be that people that that people crossed party lines all the time on individual issues yeah. they felt strongly about, and now it's just people just uh, yeah. retreat. And I think it's the same way that the culture is is going. And uh, I hate it. And that's why our show is so great. Sure, because we get both sides and we listen to one another. Exactly, fair and balanced. That's what it's all about here. <laughs> uh, all right, um, you're up next. Okay, I saw. Um, is it hidden figures? I saw hidden figures. Um, now you enjoy this movie and I enjoyed it to a point. Um, I think you have assessed it correctly and that it is a mainstream film that is for mm-hmm. grownups. It's not for, not for kids or anything like that. It, it's something the whole family can see. Not unlike the Martian. Yeah. I, I um, think that I, make no, that I, think, I think you said that offline. Off uh, off yes, yeah. it is. It is this year's the Martian in that it's a polished, but intelligent populist bit of entertainment that has uh, a positive message. Yeah. And, and has made money. I think, I think it surprised yeah. people, you know, the Martian has, you know, uh, the space stuff, you know, it seems like it, it would lend itself more to that, but yeah, hidden figures has done very well. I think polished is definitely the word. Um, I think it's wonderfully acted, uh, by by all three leads, um, it is sort of a shame that they that as tends to happen with something like this, um, that only one person was singled out. Octavia Spencer is pretty great um, yeah. in, in her role, but I feel like I feel like um, all three. Um, but the, the, what's interesting is that the uh, yeah, there's three leads, but really, Tragic P. Henson's role is the biggest yes. role in the movie. Yes. Um, so she's the lead with two supporting. Uh, what's that? She's the lead, and the other two, I'd say, are supporting. Uh, yeah, but it's it's yeah, it's surprising that she hasn't gotten as much, uh, I guess, awards attention. Yeah, it, it is strange because the other two definitely did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say, you know, it feels somehow uh, wrong to bring up the white guy, but Kevin Costner's great. Yeah, I and mean, it's not an easy uh, role to to be in to, to yeah. walk that line of not because he's. Um, in one, in some ways, I think Kevin Costner is the white character that's supposed to make the white viewer feel better to say like, I, that's how I would have been. Like I would have mm-hmm. learned, you know? Right. Um, and I think that's, um, it's important to show how this, these women's influence, um, uh, among their white peers had, uh, a transformative, uh, power, but it's also, there's a temptation to play the character maybe a little more apologetically. And I think sure. Kevin Costner, um, m- makes the right choices uh, at the right time. Yeah. And, and I think it's why the Kirsten Dunst character is so important um, because she, she's somebody who, who does say this thing that I'm sure any number of, of, of white viewer, white viewers have said, which is, um, you know, regardless of what you might think, I'm actually not against you or whatever yeah. it is. And then Octavia Spencer says, you know, uh, I'm sure you think that. Um, yeah. Now, I don't know you watched the, at home, yes. For, got the, the line got a big response in the theater. Mm. Uh, that doesn't surprise me. It, uh, I found it uh, groan worthy. Um, it's just <laughs> it's it's important. It's it's a populist line, uh, and it's in a populist film. It's just in this. It, to me, it's a line. Again, it's it's a declaration of theme. It's it's a, it's frustrating. That I watched it so soon after Moonlight because oh, Moonlight, right. yeah. like I said, it's if you get something from it, good for you. They're not going to give it to you. Um, Whereas this is, it's, it's mass entertainment and it's, and it's meant to provoke and that's good. Um, you know, uh, I was bothered, uh, early on when the three characters are driving along and, and, 
J- uh, what's her name? Janelle Monet. Janelle. I kept wanting to say Jenna Maroney. It's like, that's not correct. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and she says, you know, we are three black women and we're doing this in 1961. And I almost, I almost expected Rick Moranis to look at the screen and say, everybody got that. <laughs> yeah. Um, um that's stuff definitely like, before the movie is good. I didn't, yeah. I didn't like any, any of that stuff either. Yeah. But there's, but they do a pretty good job of showing, um, of engaging with the math, uh, that they're dealing with. Um, I just instinctively, I recognize that because of, you know, the fact that these are, that these characters are women and that they're, uh, African American and that this is a historical, uh, uh, account. Um, I recognize that it's so much more than some of these movies that, that, get to me, but it it felt like Aaron Brockovich. And I would say more criminally, it felt like the blind side to me. And that is unfortunate. I never saw the blind Um, side. Yeah. Good for you. That's a win (laughs) on your part. Uh, I liked this more than those because I think the ensemble nature helped it a lot. Mm. Um, and, but yeah, every once in a while it falls into what I call Aaron Brockovich syndrome, where all these characters, these other characters realize, Oh shit, I'm not the lead. Uh, I better do what they want me to do, but it's still a good movie. I, I think it's, it is at its best, uh, in the acting. I think the script has its moments, but is mostly pretty obvious. And the film itself is so polished that I just feel like I'm watching. I don't know what I feel like I'm watching, but, uh, you know what? I think I'm going to talk myself into liking it less than I do. Like on okay. letterboxd, I gave it three stars out of five. I think I might drop it down to two and a half, but again, I do, I do find it inspiring in some ways. So I feel like it did what it, it accomplished what it was trying to do even with me. Um, right. and, and there were moments that I, that I was really engaged. So yeah, let's stick with that. Three stars. Can you do half stars on letterboxd? You can. Okay. Um, you can't do zero stars. I think the lowest you can go is half a star. Huh. Um, are there a lot of comments like there are on Yelp? Like I'm giving this one star because zero yep. stars isn't an option. Oh yes. Yeah. Yes. It's, uh, <laughs> uh my favorite pastime is okay. finding a place that I like or that I've heard good things about and going to their Yelp page and just scrolling through looking for one star reviews. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Cause, cause I like to think like, isn't there okay. enough negativity in this world? But it's it? like, everyone loves this place. Let's see what people hated about it. And let's see what these one star reviews reveal about the people writing. Them. Oh yes. <laughs> that, okay. That I get. Uh, yeah, I'll do that with Amazon with like certain movies, yeah. like beloved movies and be like, <laughs> yeah, but there's someone that didn't get it. <laughs> all right. Um, moving on. And this will take us no time at all, okay. but I watched, um, for no good reason. It's two months after uh, the holiday season. But I watched Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Have you ever seen it? For yeah. real. Not not the MST3K, but actually. Uh, yes, I believe it. I have. Um, it's just, I mean, it's corny. I've seen worse movies for sure. But it, uh, the, the main thing that's bad about it is the acting is dreadful dreadful um and also like with woody allen you get the impression they didn't want to spend too long because there are yeah. there are moments like like you you needed another take like even how bad <laughs> with how bad these actors are you could like there's a part where the kimar the head martian right. is talking to bobby and betty or bobby and betsy whatever billy it's, and betsy it's about right the two the two kids and he steps on the girl's line he starts to talk and like his line is like, so what's your, and then she starts to, and then she stopped cause it was her turn to talk next and she has a long line. And so he just sits there and then they go, and then as soon as she goes, so what's your, like it goes on with his, with his line. It's like, he definitely needed a, a, a second take. Um, and then the part that I could watch over and over again, but I'm also kind of afraid it'll give me give me nightmares is when Santa Claus meets the Martian children for the first time. Okay. Cause it's supposed to be a heartwarming thing where they look at each other and then everyone starts laughing and Martian kids never laugh. And it's like, Oh, it's a warm moment, but it's like drawn out a little too long <laughs> of these characters just like looking around at each other and kind of starting to laugh. Uh, and it seems almost like it's a, a very surreal, like a David Lynch type of like, yeah. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I watched it. Um, it, it's pretty corny. There's some, there's some real bad, uh, costumes, uh, 
but I, feel, I guess I feel bad, you know, people have been making fun of this movie for 50 years. Yeah. I feel bad making fun of it too much for having like a dumb, the robot costume just clearly being like a guy with a cardboard yeah. box and, you know, tubing like painted silver or the polar bear, which is the best part. The po- <laughs> it, Yes. <laughs> that, I mean, it's, it's a weird, it's weird to phrase it that way, but yes, I agree. All right. Uh, what's next for you? Uh, last movie I saw, um, Apropos of nothing, I was looking through Hulu and uh, I was like, I, I never actually looked to see what movies are available on here. And I saw that The Untouchables uh, was on oh. there. And I have watched more De Palma films in the last few months than I have in a, in a very long time. Mm-hmm. And I had not seen The Untouchables since watching uh, these films. And so I thought, oh, I'll give this a shot. If nothing else, I do love the music. And so part of me thought, I'll watch the opening credits, enjoy that fun score, and then I'll be done. Uh, but I just kept watching a little bit more and a little bit more. And before, you know, I was like, okay, I've watched this whole movie. Um, still don't like it that much. Yeah, it's not that great. I mean, I, I liked it when I was a kid, when it was like I was watching at a friend's house when I wasn't supposed to because it was rated R. And my sure. parents were strict about that. Like there was that sort of that and glory for some reason. I loved to watch like you say, well, Glory, that one holds like, up. Um, I actually don't, I, I haven't seen it since I was a kid. I'm sure it does. Um, but, uh, you know, Glory, like you think it's like this stodgy historical movie, but like for a kid, it's real bloody. Glory, yeah, Glory is. And so there was, that was ex- exciting. So I'd watch the untouchables and Glory, uh, in Digstown weirdly. Cause my friend's <laughs> dad like had it on VHS. Oh, the con is on. Uh, yeah, it's not what they want to lose. It's how you fix the game. There you go. Um, uh, so those are movies we would watch that were that were uh, rated R, and I, but I knew I wasn't supposed to. And one time, I, another friend of mine wanted to watch The Bodyguard, oh, okay. and I didn't want to watch The Bodyguard because I didn't care. So I was like, I need to ask my mom if I can watch that. Like knowing she'd say no, but really, I just I just didn't want to watch The Bodyguard. Wow. Um, you yeah. are really manipulating the system. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I like the untouchables. And then, yeah, when I revisited it as, um, even not even necessarily like an adult, adult, like maybe a college student, yeah. I was like, oof. I have never responded well to it. Uh, there are things, admittedly, I saw it, uh, I think I first saw it in high school and there are things, there are great things about it. I love that music. It is really, it, it's, it's unique that, that bit of score. Um, it definitely doesn't, in, I would never think of that music to go with a, a you know a gangster movie or whatever you would consider the Untouchables, and yet somehow once it's there, I can't not associate it with that film or think it's oh well this is obviously the best gangster music of all time. Uh, but uh, and of course the production design and the costume design is really good, um, and I and I, I like. Maybe because I was thinking of Hidden Figures, but uh, I do like Kevin Costner in the film. I think he does a pretty good job. There are moments when he's a little bit stilted, but there are other there are other times, like whenever he seems really upright and he is like giving a speech. Yeah, he seems very right for that role. You had yourself a little Kevin Costner double feature. I did absolutely very different films. Yeah, um, but uh, and and watching Sean Connery, I, I like his performance. It's really good. Um, but yeah, it's just, I'll say this, that, uh, and I think I, I think, uh, Dave and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, man, I don't see a, tr- I don't hear a trace of David Mamet in that film. Hmm. Um, there's a couple things here and there. There's like, you know, some clever turns of phrase, but I, that's not necessarily what I think of, of him, especially in the eighties. Uh, it just seems like, it, it just seems like empty calories, that movie. It's nothing. It's just nothing. Um, I still watched all of it. It is watchable, uh, extremely, but once it's over, it's, 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 it's a very weird structure. Um, and it's over before I feel like it should be over. It feels like there should be a bigger thing going on. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to describe that. I associate the untouchables with tombstone. I've been having a long time. Yeah. In that people my age love both movies. I have never responded to either one beyond one or two really great performances. Um, yeah. And people assure me, oh, no, this movie's amazing. And I've tried. Lord, how I've tried. And I cannot make myself love Tombstone. I cannot make myself love The Untouchables. 
my reaction to them is just is very similar. Uh, and Tombstone yeah. was also on Hulu, and I might revisit it for what would then be, I think, the fourth or fifth time in my life. I have given it <laughs> its due. And I think I saw it once. Yeah, and I, yeah, I never cared for for Tombstone yeah. outside of Val Kilmer. Outside of Val Kilmer, yeah. Um, but yeah, Untouchables. You know what? I'm not touching it again. <laughs> uh, my final movie is another movie that doesn't come out for uh, a couple months. Um, uh, it's called Norman, or its full title is Norman: The Moderate Rise and Tragic Fall of a New York Fixer. Uh, and it is the English language debut of director Joseph Cedar, who's an Israeli director who uh, about five or six years ago had a movie called Footnote um, that oh, yeah. was uh, worthwhile. I, I kind of I didn't love it, but I uh, respected it. It's not it's it's definitely a distinct. Uh, he has he has an individual voice. Um, and now he's made this uh, this movie, Norman, that I think is uh, terrific. Um, and weirdly, like it played Telluride in Toronto and it got like no press and i don't really understand why because uh it's a it's a really uh a really cool movie uh wherein um richard gear uh, as norman um is a guy who is basically makes his living he says he does like consulting or whatever basically he just like makes connections between high-ranking you know, people in finance or politics or whatever, um, and facilitates meetings in between, in between them. But he's, uh, he's kind of, you know, he's a low rung guy himself. He's not like, when I say that you picture like a, you know, a suave guy who moves around in different, you know, who can move from circle to circle, but no, this guy's like a ground level striver kind Mm of, uh, you know, he needles people and, and he, he gets stuff done and he's good at what he does, but he's also not, a particularly well-respected yeah. uh, guy. Um, and uh, this movie has an incredible cast, uh, including a surprising number of uh, non-Jewish actors. Play- like every character in the movie pretty much is Jewish. Uh, and yet it's like Richard Gere and Steve Buscemi and um, Dan Stevens. Um, and uh, there's another uh, major one that I'm, that I'm leaving out um, that I'm, Oh, Michael Sheen. Um <laughs> I wasn't expect that. I wasn't yeah. expecting that name, but I uh, guess I should have been. Yeah, and he's and Michael Sheen doing a um, you know a New York Jewish accent. Um, Is he good at it? Uh, I guess it's not. Yeah, not. It's not. I'm sure if I lived there um, or were part of that community, I would find holes in it. But it's not distracting. Um, but the the the, the story is told in four acts. But in, in the in in the first act you know, he's trying to meet different people. He's trying to, you know, he's trying to get, make these connections. You know, he's, uh, the kind of guy who sort of like happens to run into people, but it's not a happenstance at all. He's right. like planned to be there when Dan Stevens is on his morning jog, just so he can say like, Hey, this guy you work for, like, or I used to know your father from the temple. And now this guy you work for, uh, if you could, uh, you know, put in a good word. So that's like what he does with his time every day, all day. He's on his phone. He's trying to meet people. Uh, and then, so he tries, uh, there's a visiting, uh, Israeli politician, uh, played by, um, uh, key, I think his name is, is it Lior, Lior Ashkenazi, who was the lead in footnote, um, uh, or at least the young, the, he was the, the son, it's a father son sort of duo in that movie, uh, is, is an Israeli, a, a somewhat like mid-level Israeli politician who's visiting. Um, and, um, he, manages to maneuver himself close to this guy, um, spends an afternoon with him, buys him a pair of shoes, you know, gets his business card and, you know, establishes a relationship with him. And then we cut to act three mm-hmm. or sorry, act two. It's three years later. And this guy that Leo Ashkenazi plays has just been elected prime minister of Israel. So yeah. suddenly, uh, Norman, who's trying to make connections all the time, finds himself with an incredibly influential connection, um, and finds himself at a different sort of strata that he was in before. And these people like the, the Harris Ulan character that he was like, try, yeah, Harris Ulan plays, um, uh, Dan Stevenson's bo- Dan Stevens boss, um, that he's been trying to make suddenly all these doors are opened for him. And, yeah. you know, uh, Josh, I forgot Josh Charles is in it as well. Hmm. Um, uh, he's kind of a rival financial banker to Harris Hewlin's character. And so both of them like wanted to talk. So suddenly he's in this new level and he's making all these connections. Um, and he's facilitating things. Uh, and it has, it's a movie that has like, it's one of those movies that has an incredibly complex plot 
if you think about it too hard, but the movie's also telling you like, it's okay not to think it's okay to just get the broad strokes of this, you know, in terms of like, he's setting up all these things where he's like, okay, if you do this for this person and this person does this for this and this circle of like favors and stuff. Um, and then I don't want to want to go into where it goes, uh, from there, but, um, it's sort of, um, results in you know norman being put in a place that tests his actual convictions and to to what extent is he just a schemer and a liar and to what extent does he believe that he's doing good and what extent are the friendships that he's making actual friendships uh it's a really cool movie it has hmm. some it has that sort of idiosyncratic tone that footnote has where it's like um the music is terrific it's a japanese composer named jun mikai i think is how you say his name um and the music's almost wall to wall and it's very sort of you know very cello heavy but like sort of driving and sometimes peppy but sometimes very ominous uh and it and it's constant it's very arch i think is the word i wrote my review the movie hasn't posted yet so i can go put the word arch in because that's that's exactly (laughs) the word that i should have used to describe them the music is very arch um and the editing matches it and there's little tricks like when he's on the phone with someone there's this sort of like invisible split screen thing that he does where the two sides kind of overlap so it looks like they're in the same space but they're clearly like one's outside in an alley and one's in a lobby in 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 you know jerusalem or whatever but they look like they're uh, standing right next to each other um so it's it's a it's a fun interesting movie and i think uh i want to pay attention to more from joseph cedar because yeah. he's got a, a real uh he, he's got a he's got a voice um so yeah norman comes out in april um check it out now Harris Eulen has not aged a single day uh, since I was first aware of him. And then now, when were you first aware of him? I would say that probably the first thing I saw him in was probably Ghostbusters Two, in which he plays a, a judge. See, it's been so long since I've seen that. I don't think I. But he was also in uh, Candy Mountain. You remember that movie that I had on VHS? Yeah. Um, yeah. He, which was made in I think like '87, and you know, and I've seen him in all kinds of stuff. And then I believe he's in uh, place beyond the pines, which I just rewatched. And that's yep. only a few years ago. And I, I think his hair might be slightly whiter, but not really. <laughs> I think he's looked about 65 to 70 his whole life. Yeah. Uh, it, it's very strange. Uh, yeah. He, he, cause you're right. There were things that I saw him in, um, but beforehand, but he was also on, he was a recurring character on Buffy, the vampire slayer. Hmm. Um, who is, you ever watched, uh, you've seen some TV shows. You ever watch like, you have a memory of a show and you think of a character who was like a guest star and they like, in your mind, they were like in a huge number of episodes and you look back yeah. and they were only in, in this case, Quentin Travers, Quentin Travers, Harry Shulin's character was only in three episodes of Buffy, yeah. but he's such a dry, he's such an important force. And those episodes are spaced out over yeah. enough time. Um, that it always feels like he was in way more episodes than that. Yeah. That's how I feel about putty on Seinfeld. Oh, right. Like, He's only in, I think, seven episodes, if wow. that, wow. Uh, maybe eight. I think of him as being right up there with Newman. Yeah. Uh, but no, he's only in a handful of episodes. Now, I, it's, it's, a, it's more concentrated because it's, it's eight episodes over the course of, I think, three seasons because I don't think he, you right. know, as opposed to Newman, who's there the whole time. But uh, yeah, only like eight <laughs> episodes. Crazy. Yeah. Um, but I definitely, but he definitely made his mark. You yeah. know, you ask the eight ball. I love that. Um, um, okay. I also didn't mention uh, real quick. Um, Charlotte Gainsbourg is also in, oh, okay. in, in the movie. Uh, it's got, it's got a great, that's cast. a great cast. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, were you watching any TV? I did. Uh, as a function of my TV history class, I watched an episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show in which, Rest in peace. uh, yes, indeed. Uh, in which, Lou Grant, played by Ed Asner, uh, he is, he and his wife are going to separate. Um, I don't know if they're going to get divorced. Um, but, uh, and it is his wife's idea and they still love each other and she still loves him. But as she explains, she's so used to thinking of herself in regards to him, to being Lou Grant's wife and, all of that, that she, she doesn't know anything about herself outside of being a wife and a mother. And so, uh, so she still loves him, uh, tremendously, but she needs this break and who knows what's going to happen on this break. And so, you know, I definitely understand why we watched that particular episode because it's, you know, while Mary Tyler Moore was already dealing with, you know, uh, uh, 
women's lib, mm-hmm. uh, as uh, Jerry Foster says it in uh, Taxi Driver. Um, I know other people said it, but like for some reason, I have a hard time saying it without thinking of her saying, <laughs> uh, "You ever hear of women's lib?" Uh, and so, uh, but the idea that this is. It's not. It's something that yes, definitely affects Lou uh, in probably a negative way. Um, he definitely does not want this, um, but that uh, that it's not done with any overt malice. Um, that this is somebody just trying to figure out who they are uh, is something that that is very interesting, and it's and it's uh, at times, uh, admittedly, a little heartbreaking. Um, but it's it's done very very well. Um, and then we watched an episode of the Rockford Files, which I have never seen. Um, uh, neither have I, actually. It's this is the one with James Garner. Yeah, oh, I know which one it is. Yeah. yeah. And so here's the nature of our screenings in, uh, in my TV history class. We talk for three hours about what we watched the previous week. And then we have, and then we have a 10-minute break. And then we sit and watch about two and a half hours of stuff. So it is a long day. Yeah. It is not uncommon for the uh, the screening room to be not quite as full at the end as it was at the beginning. <laughs> uh, and I myself will sometimes duck out once I kind of get the gist of the last thing we're watching. I was going to do that with Rockford Files. Like, you know, it's a full, it's, it's 45 minutes. Uh, after about 15 minutes, I thought like, you know what, I think I kind of get this. Maybe I'll duck out. But I was like, Son of a bitch, I do want to know who killed this woman. Uh, and so I was there the whole time. And it's, uh, it's you know, it's nothing particularly special. Uh, but as you know, I'm a sucker for uh, procedural. Mm-hmm. And um, and it is definitely that. And the character of, of uh, Jim Rockford definitely does come through. Um, he's, there's a, a certain shambling quality to him. Uh, but he is also very authoritative and seems to be a genuinely decent guy. And so, uh, so yeah, I, I enjoyed that a great deal. It was enough to, to hook me, uh, and watch the whole thing. And, uh, which kind of screwed up my plans for the night cause I was planning on leaving early. Uh, but damn you Rockford files, you got me. So I think that is about it is, I feel like, Oh, that's right. We watch, we watch stuff from like, we watched news coverage of Watergate. Uh, oh, wow. That's, and it was very interesting. Um, but, uh, but we didn't watch any particular show or anything like that. So, uh, so that's it for me. 